All right, why don't you guys open your Bibles with me to Matthew chapter 4. How many of you guys were here last week? We talked through the temptation of Jesus um, this morning. We're going to be in passages uh, 12 through 17 of chapter 4. So if you guys would turn there. Actually, b- before we get started, um, do we have any veterans in the house? Will you guys stand? Can we just give them a hand this morning and thank them for their service? Yeah. Amen. Thank you guys so much. Awesome. Thank you for your service. As we get into uh, Matthew chapter 4, verse 12 this morning, ask a question to start out this morning. How many of you guys have ever been in complete darkness before in your life? Anybody? Like complete darkness. I'm not talking you saw stars. I'm saying you saw nothing, complete dark, and you weren't knocked out. <laughs> a handful of you. Um, there's been two times in my life that I've been in complete darkness. Uh, one time I was in Israel, and we were walking through some tunnels underneath the city that was kind of intense, and it was totally dark, and I do not do well in dark or closed quarters, so it was horrid. Uh, the, the other time, I was actually on a bike trail. Have you guys helped me out? What's the name of the bike trail up at... I can't. I still can't understand. It's up past Lookout. Hiawatha. There we go. Thank you. Thank you. I have lived here for a while. Um, But I was on the Hiawatha Trail, and Judah was probably three years old at the time. And I took him on this trip. We didn't have bikes. We borrowed bikes um, to go on a ride like that. We didn't have headlamps, um, but the people that we were with did. Uh, I knew nothing about that trail, just thought it'd be cool to take my son up there and do that with some other people. And um, we get into that tunnel, and it was like pitch black. Have you guys ever been it? Been it? It's pitch black, right? You can't even see the end of it. And uh, Judah just started freaking out. This was just like a couple days ago, right, Judah? Um, but Judah starts freaking out in this tunnel. And so then as a parent, you start freaking out because you don't know why he's freaking out. And you can't see him to know why he's freaking out. And it was just like doubly scary for me. Uh, And I realized that um, I'd never experienced darkness like that in my life before. I've been in dark places, but you always had uh, at least a glimmer of light. But I'd never been in complete darkness like that before, like pitch black darkness. And it, it was the kind of darkness, again, where you could not see anyone or anything. It was the darkest of dark. And uh, the, the second impression that kind of seized me during that time was that my son's screaming in terror and, uh, as we made our way through this tunnel. And as I stood there and listened to Judah cry, um, I paused for a second and I realized how sketchy it was because I, there were two things that I realized. One is that I couldn't see him. Two, I couldn't see what was happening to him and while he was screaming, which made it even worse for me. And then I started thinking to myself, like, what if... A light goes out, and it's even darker, like one of the headlamps that somebody had that was with us. Um, And I realized in that moment just how crazy darkness is and how it messes with your head. I mean, you start, like, thinking through all the different options and the things that could go wrong when you can't have any sort of context or idea where you're at and what's going on around you and your son's screaming. Uh, and, And... when we got to the end of that tunnel, honestly, I, I, I was never so glad to see light in my life. 
than when we got through that tunnel at the end. And if you've ever been in total darkness before in your life, you can probably relate to me. And there's something special, something almost magical, I'll say, um, about light illuminating darkness, isn't there? When you're in pitch black and then you see a ray of light, there's something just really neat about it. The light takes up the whole space. I mean, as you get to the end of the tunnel, the whole tunnel is lit up, not just a portion of it, but the whole thing. Like one minute you can't see anything, the next minute you can see everything. And so in a spiritual sense, for you and I, uh, that's the exact effect that Jesus had on our world during his ministry. And that he continues, I believe, to have today. Amen? Uh, he brings light into darkness. Uh, prior to meeting Jesus, people were lost in this spiritual darkness. They were fumbling around in the dark. They were trying to find their way to God. Uh, the, the Jewish people had the Old Testament, which the Apostle descri uh, Paul described in Romans 3.2 as a great benefit over the condition of the non-Jewish people known as the Gentiles. But God's revelation to them had been perverted into this legalistic code of do's and don'ts uh, by their teachers who taught in such a way that it was impossible actually for the common person, the regular folk, the Gentile, to have a relationship with God. And so the, the Gentile, which was the non-Jewish people, had it even worse. Uh, they, they were lost in complete and utter spiritual darkness. The Bible says that they were without hope and without God in the world completely, Ephesians 2.12. Um, that they were slaves to so-called gods that do not even exist, in Galatians 4. That they worshipped this plethora of idols. They tried to find their way to God. The, the Apostle Paul speaks of their, their efforts as groping for God in Acts is how he states it. And so this word grope is kind of gross, right? But it conjures up sort of this image of like a blind man that's, that's reaching out, that's desperately trying to find something that he knows is there, but he can't quite locate it. And so Jew and Gentile on both sides, the Jews and the Gentiles, though, were lost in darkness when Jesus came. The whole world needed Jesus, and this was the spiritual condition of the world that Jesus came into. So read with me in uh, Matthew chapter 4. We'll start at verse 12 and read through verse 17. You can say word when you guys get there. Are you with me? Are we all tracking this morning? Matthew 4, 12, okay. It's the first book in the New Testament. Now when he heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee, and leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. And then he quotes this prophecy from Isaiah. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So this darkness that Isaiah talks about, this, uh, and also the, 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 the cultural climate at the time, understand that the, the Jews and the Gentiles, both of them are considered lost, but the Jews don't think they're lost, and the Gentiles um, aren't really invited into the process with the Jews, and they're like lost of the lost. And this is the setting that Jesus begins his ministry in. This is where Jesus starts. Uh, and so Matthew tells us that after being baptized, 
by John the Baptist, as we read about a couple weeks ago. Jesus goes into the desert, and he's tempted for 40 days um, by the devil, which we read last week. And then as we see here in Matthew 4.12, the, the, the evil, the crooked king, Herod, has John the Baptist arrested, and it was at that point that Jesus begins his public ministry. And so I want you to listen to how Matthew describes this event. Like, I want you to read through this again. If you have your Bibles with you, open them again, Matthew 4.12. And I want you to listen and understand what's taking place and what he's saying. Now, when he heard that John the Baptist, John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. Leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and the sh- and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying what? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Eleven different times in the book of Matthew, Matthew tells us about something Jesus did or something Jesus said, and then he explains how that action or those words actually fulfilled something that God had promised long ago. And so Matthew does this to to underscore for you and I that Jesus really is the hero, that it really all was all about him, that he really is the king, he is the Messiah, that he's the one that God promised to send into our world to save us. He is really the one. And so here in this passage, Matthew says that Jesus began his ministry in this city called Capernaum. Everybody say Capernaum. Anybody ever been there before? There's nothing there anymore, huh? I mean, there's just like a handful, like some rubbles, and there's a uh, church that has been built over the, a building that has been uh, built over the top of what was supposedly um, Peter's mother's house. But there's not much there. And, and, and so Matthew says that Jesus began his ministry in the city of, of Capernaum to fulfill what was said through the prophet Isaiah. So th- this morning, real briefly, I want to talk about how Jesus' ministry in the city of Capernaum fulfilled God's purposes in the Old Testament and then why that matters for you and us today. Uh, does anybody here like geography? Anybody geography nerd? Anybody here choose documentaries over movies? Come on. You're my people. I love watching like factual things. I, I really do like geography. One of the blessings for me in going to Israel was actually walking the land and placing, like putting together in my mind where these things were, what they looked like, how they felt, like what the landscape was. Like there's nothing like being able to read the scripture and place yourself in the setting. But we read six verses this morning, six short verses. And there's 12 references in these six passages to geographical locations in these six verses. Kinds of interesting. 12 references to geographical locations. And so, but before we even get into it, I just want to remind us this morning of why this is important. The fact that there's these 12 references to these geographical, geographical locations. Because one, like as we read the word of God, it's here, right? Like it says it. It's in the word, and if every word that proceeds from the mouth of God is important and used for our edification, we need to understand why the Lord wanted this here. If if the word of God is given by inspiration of God and is profitable, as it says, for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, then we probably should pay attention to what the word says. And, And second, because 
when we read about geography, it actually helps us link biblical stories to real life places. And so the, this, we, we realize that this isn't fiction, that, that in, a, in a fictitious story, it's written about fabricated beings and fabricated places. But when we read about an actual geographic location, we understand that this is real. This is a place. It's tangible. Like you can go there today and see this place. And so th- this is real life. And so when you see these geographical places in, in, talked about in Scripture, it's awesome to me that those places still exist. It helps me solidify that, that what I read and what I talk about actually happened. It's there. And so also when we talk about geography, you begin, you begin to understand the location that they're talking about, the area that they talked about. It sort of sets the stage for us and it gives us, us this sort of feel for what life was like at this time. And so when we say um, like in the mountains, you actually begin to place yourselves in your minds in the mountains. Or when I say by the lake, you begin to, some of you start thinking about summer, don't you? And what it was like three months ago versus now. And you start placing yourself in the context, thinking about yourself down by the lake, like you understand it better. Uh, it, it helps sort of frame the context for us. And this is why I encourage you all at some point, like you really do need to go to Israel because it will blow your mind. It's, it's awesome to be able to walk it and read about it, and place yourself in that place. But um, the, the first thing I want to say this morning is that God promised this would happen through Isaiah. So he promised that the light will shine upon the people that were walking in darkness, and that there would be joy. And so I wanted to put up a, a slide this morning, the first one, um, just for you to get an idea of where we're talking about. Which one is this? Um, go to the one prior to that. The other one. There we go. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to walk over here because I don't have a pointer or anything. But you guys can see. Um, you can't see. I'm so confused right now. Uh, you actually need to go up further. And that picture got cut off. Anyway, I was going to give you an idea of where this is at. Go back to the one with the VMRS, if you would, please. Okay, you can see... Go up to the very top here. <laughs> you see where it says Tiberius? Can anybody see that? In the very top. There's the Sea of Galilee. And all running along from Egypt all the way up the coast of Israel, across to the northern tip of the Sea of Galilee, is this road called the Via Maris, or the Way of the Sea. And so this was a major trade route for them. And so everything would come from Egypt, make its way along the coast, and would come through Capernaum, which is at the northernmost part of the Sea of Galilee there. And so Capernaum was, was this super busy lakeside city. It was like bustling on, on the northern end of the Sea of Galilee. And, and in fact, Peter, uh, Andrew, James, and John were all from Capernaum, as was Matthew. It was home to like a thriving fishing industry, um, which actually created a, a fair amount of wealth for the fishermen in the area. Area, But scholars say that Capernaum was the most important city in the Galilee during the time of Jesus. And it's not surprising since it sits on this Via Maris, like this very well-known trade route, the main trade route that gets you from Egypt all the way up to Damascus, which would be in modern-day Syria. And so although this region of Galilee where Capernaum is located was part of the nation of Israel, and it had this large Jewish population, 
it also had this really significant, this huge Gentile population that lived in it because it's closer to Rome. And so as people are making their way down, there's kind of this mingling of the two happening in northern Israel there. And again, this was due to the fact that uh, the, the Galilee was the border between Israel and the Gentile lands to the north. And so just north of the Galilee is a mountain called Mount Hermon. And uh, there's an area just at the base of Mount Hermon there called Caesarea Philippi. Anybody ever heard of that area? Uh, so Caesarea Philippi, if you've ever been there before, or you've read the story, you remember that Jesus takes his, deli- his disciples there as kind of his last effort, his like graduation speech to his disciples. He takes them up to Caesarea Philippi, and he gives them the speech. And, and this is prior to Jesus making his way down to Jerusalem before he's crucified. You guys all tracking with me this morning? I'm setting this up for you so you have some understanding. Uh, But it's at Caesarea Philippi is where Jesus asks his disciples, who do you say that I am? And then Peter replies, you're the son of the living God. And Jesus says, you're Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. You guys remember that story? Okay, so Caesarea Philippi, if you can imagine this, is sort of like the Las Vegas of northern Israel at the time. It's like the place of all debauchery. There's tons of idol worship going on in this place. The the, the Roman culture uh, there, the the Gentiles, were just partaking in all kinds of junk. I mean, there there are temple prostitutes. There's the god of Pan. There's all these different things and temples for them to worship in. And a lot of the gods that they worshiped, even in this place, came through sexual intercourse. was how they gave worship to these gods. It was the most disgusting place that Jesus could have taken his disciples as his graduation speech to them, to tell them that on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it, while he's standing there with the lost of the lost. So just just to frame the context for you, like Jesus is retreating to the worst place that he could possibly retreat to as far as the population of people. These aren't a bunch of believers. These aren't a bunch of Jews. These aren't, this isn't the ideal place for Jesus to go after his temptation. It's like the least of these, the, the, the place that you would never expect Jesus to go. And this is where Jesus retreats to. He doesn't go to Jerusalem where all the good Jews are, but, but he goes to where all the pagans live. He goes into the Galilee, the northernmost part of the Galilee. And so you have this mixture of Jewish and Gentile populations that, that, that caused the Jews in the southern part of the country to look down on Galilee. Do you guys remember when we talked about Nazareth a few weeks ago and how Nazareth was kind of looked down? It wasn't an awesome city for Jesus to um, come from. But the, this is where Jesus was, was from. And then now he's going back to the Galilee, which again is another place that is not the best of the best. It's not safe and secure. It's it's a, it's a place with lots of work, and it's a place where there's a ton of people and a ton of opportunity, but it's the lost of the lost. And this was the Galilee during the time of Jesus. 700 years prior to this, though, in the prophet Isaiah's time, the situation in Galilee was totally different. And so the, at the prophet Isaiah's time, um, this whole region of Galilee was threatened by this Assyrian army to the north. And it was the first part of Israel that would fall to Assyria just a few years later. And so there's major war, conflict going on up in there. And so Isaiah says that the people of that region, he says they lived in distress and they they lived in fearful gloom, that they could see what the future held in store for them and they were totally powerless to stop it. So there's conflict. 
And then God brings the army of Assyria against Israel uh, back in uh, Isaiah's day as this punishment. And the nation of Israel rejects God over and over again as we read about. They had neglected God's laws. They had scorned the worship of God and worshiped all these other gods. They, they preferred to worship false gods. They were popular among the pagan people. And God had given them numerous warnings and he called these people to repentance. That was his call, to turn from their ways and turn their hearts back to him. And still, they refused God over and over again in the Old Testament. So God finally said enough. And, and so God's promise uh, to, was to bring the Assyrian army as this final punishment for their rejection of him. And so in the midst of this gloom and despair, God makes this promise. So if you look in uh, Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1-7, through 7, some of you will remember some of these verses because we read them every Christmas. But I want you to understand the context of where Jesus is going and what the climate has been like there for 700 years. And so this is the promise that Matthew quotes there in Matthew 4, that, that Jesus fulfilled by, by conducting like a major portion of his ministry in the Galilee. So Isaiah 9, 1 through 7 says, But there will be no gloom for her who, has, who was in anguish. In the former time he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea. What does that mean? Viamaris. He has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness, and here's where Matthew gets this quote, have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them a light has shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with the joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle, tumult, and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born. To us, a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. Anybody, does this, is this uh, ring a bell for anybody? Wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it, to uphold it with justice and with righteousness. From this time forth, forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Amen? Can you imagine being the people that this message is being spoken to? Who've lived their lives in conflict, gone back and forth with God, rejected him over and over again. And now this message comes forth to you. And I want you, again, to, to look at this passage because it seems to be central to what Matthew's saying in this section of Matthew 4. And I want you to check this out. Isaiah is so confident that God is really going to do what he promised that he actually puts this all in past tense. Do you, don't you think that's interesting? 700 years prior, he puts it all in past tense as if, as if it's already happened. Isaiah didn't say that the people would see a great light. He, he said that the people have seen a great light, and, and a light has dawned, and God has enlarged the nation, and God has shattered the yoke. And to us, a child is born. All of these events are still future for Isaiah, but he's speaking of them as though they were past. 
Like we, we would expect Isaiah to use some sort of future tense. The people will see a great light, which will dawn, and God will shatter their yoke. But God wanted Isaiah's hearers, the people that he's sharing this with, to know that this promise was as good as done because God had made it. That he will follow through with it. This was the same God who, who elsewhere, like in Isaiah, said that his word will not return to him empty, but will accomplish what he desires and achieve the purpose for which he sent it. God's word wouldn't be defeated. What, what he promised would come to pass. And so he sort of couches this promise in, in the language of this the past tense and as if the promise had already been fulfilled because it was that certain to Isaiah that it would, it, that it would happen. And this whole northern land of the Galilee, which Isaiah refers to as Galilee of the Gentiles, would actually be honored by the presence of a great light. You'd think that the light would come to Jerusalem. And he's talking about the light coming into the darkest of places. Look at that phrase. He says, Galilee of the Gentiles. It's kind of, it's kind of interesting that Isaiah uses that, that phrasing. It doesn't appear anywhere else in the Old Testament, so, so far as we can tell. And no one else has ever called the region of Galilee by this phrase, Galilee of the Gentiles. And so there, there's tons of Gentiles in Galilee during the time of Isaiah. But actually, if you go back and research, scholars think that there were millions more Gentiles in Galilee when Jesus came than there were 700 years prior when, I, prior when Isaiah was there. Tons more people, which means way more dark things that Jesus is coming into. And I, I think that the people in Isaiah's day would have sort of scratched their head and wondered, like, why God called Galilee that, Galilee of the Gentiles. Like, it's just odd. And the, the reason I, I want to point this out to you is because it, it's one more piece of evidence that the Bible really was authored by somebody that had this supernatural view of the future. Nobody else could have foresaw this. But Isaiah had this word from God that he was sharing. And so Isaiah said that a light would dawn upon those who lived in darkness. And in his day, the, the people of Galilee lived in uh, the emotional darkness and the fear that comes from knowing that this enemy who's stronger than you has set his sight on your territory, that you're doomed. But, but as we know, in Jesus' day, when the prophecy was fulfilled, the people of Galilee lived in complete spiritual darkness. They were seeking God for one reason or another. They were not successful. And into that darkness, like this land filled with the shadow of spiritual death, the Messiah would shine this amazing light. Like the, the Hebrew word translated into light in this passage had this really wide range of meaning depending on how it was used. One, um, it was used to refer to a literal light. That sounds easy, right? Um, like when the Bible calls the sun this great light, or he calls, or the Bible calls the, the moon the lesser light, like in Genesis. Um, this is the light that sometimes the Bible refers to. But other times, light is used as this metaphor, and it indicates God's instruction. Like when the Bible says God's word is a what? A lamp to our feet and a light to our path. Or when it says the, the unfolding of God's words gives light. It gives understanding to the simple. And so this was the sense that God used the word in Isaiah um, as, as we were reading. When God said that the people walking in darkness would see a great light, he didn't actually mean that the Messiah was coming onto the scene with a flashlight. 
know what I mean? I'm here. There was something greater taking place. There was a new way. There was a new kingdom being, there was a new king in charge. There was a new ruler. There was a new reign. The light was different. It wasn't just something that could flip on like a flashlight. It was, from a spiritual sense, it was something to shine upon the hearts and the lives of mankind to reveal the way to them. Then he goes on to say, um, or that Jesus comes to the God forsaken. And, and I want to challenge us this morning that, like, he comes to the God forsaken both then and now. And he comes to shine this great light both then and now. Like, this isn't some story we read about. Jesus is actually on the move, shining his light. And how does he shine his light upon this earth today? Through you and I. It's through the church, through hearts that have repented and turned to him. And so Matthew recognized in, in Jesus' decision to move to Capernaum in Galilee that this was the fulfillment of this promise. And in Jesus' preaching, Jesus was literally shining his light. Like he was banishing darkness, the, the darkness of spiritual blindedness. Jesus was banishing. He was opening up humanity's eyes to God and to God's love for us. And if you read ahead where we're going to be at in a couple weeks, and you look at verses 23 and 25, it tells us the result of Jesus' ministry in Galilee. It says, he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, healing every disease, every affliction among people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria. And they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, those having seizures and paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis and from Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. Jesus fulfilled God's promise through that Isaiah had prophesied 700 years prior. And he actually still fulfills this promise today, you guys. Jesus still shines God's light upon us. He, he illuminates our darkness and he draws us to himself like, like moths being drawn to a flame, right? The light comes on and we're drawn to him. Do you remember in the Isaiah passage how God said that he would enlarge the nation? And it's interesting that when the Messiah comes, God said, I will enlarge the nation. I will draw all people to me. And that's exactly what Jesus did. Like, that's why he entered into our world. And the best part of this is that Jesus still shines this light on those that the world might consider to be the God-forsaken ones. Jesus still calls the sinners to repentance. He continues to shine his light even on those that the world might suppose had been given up on by God. How many of you are thankful for that? Anybody in here ever feel like you were given up on? And when you found Jesus, it was like you found a home, the one he created you for. I've met so many people in this world that I would classify as the God forsaken in my lifetime. These are the people that others might think had been given up on by God and maybe some with good justification. But they were the ones that we might describe as committed sinners. They sinned and they went all out. They're all in. They enjoyed their lifestyle. They sort of thumbed their nose at God. 
But God hadn't given up on them, no matter what conventional wisdom might have indicated. God never gave up on them. And I've witnessed this in my own life. Um, many of you know, like I, I spent years traveling around the world with a skateboard team. The craziest thing. And um, we got invited to this NASCAR event one time. And it rocked me. Anybody ever been to a NASCAR race? It's like spring break for middle-aged adults, if you've never been to one. It's absolutely debaucherous and insane. And uh, we, we get to this NASCAR race, and this guy takes us to where we're setting up, and we set up our ramps, and we set up our sound system and everything to get ready for this skateboard and BMX demo that we were going to do. And we were basically in the heart of the track. And if you've ever been to a NASCAR race before, you know there's like 300,000 people in the stands and there's probably another 50,000 to 100,000 just in the center of the track. I mean, it's so big that there were people sitting in their RVs watching the TV, watching the race, because you just can't see it. Imagine that, paying hundreds of dollars to go to a race to watch it on a screen. Absolutely ridiculous. But we set up our stuff, and the guy puts me in this golf cart, and he goes, do you want to see what NASCAR is like? And I'm like, sure, I'll go for the ride. Drives me around this golf cart, and it was just, I've never been in a situation like it in my life. It was like drunk people everywhere. It was the craziest situation, just like yelling and screaming and partying. And it was all people over 40, which was insane to me. And it was just absolutely out of control. And I remember thinking to myself before this event, like, we always do events for teenagers. <laughs> These are all middle-aged adults. They don't like skateboarding. They don't like BMX, like, what the heck is God going to do here? And I remember almost doubting God, like, um, could he show up there? Will, will he do something here? Because these people could care less if we're here and what we're doing. And we set up for this, this a skateboard demo. And we start doing this demo, and I kid you not, it was um, maybe some of the guys that were with BFC at the time were at this event. There was probably a thousand people gathered around this skateboard course, and they all had beers in hand, and they're yelling and shouting, ah, like there's party, and like they're loving life. And uh, we get to the end of the event, and I start to feel just so nervous. Like, I got to get up there and preach the gospel. I'm going to get beers thrown at me. You know, these people are nuts. And um, I get up there at the end and share the gospel, and it was one of the most impactful times of my life. Because by God's providence, what happened is he starts drawing hundreds of people out of the crowd to come forward and give their lives to Jesus. And on their way forward, beer in hand, they're putting their beer in the trash can. We're watching it happen as they walk forward to the stage to come to Jesus, and they're just bawling. And I remember at that time thinking to myself, like, oh, ye of little faith, for one. But two, is it not insane that God, by his providence, can show up somewhere Despite how good we are at anything we do, by his spirit, the light comes and it hits the people who he intends for it to hit. It comes upon their hearts and they get so radically consumed by what Jesus is doing in them that they're willing to forsake everything that's important to them right now. They're drunk, beer in hand, they're, they're there to party, but they're forsaking it all to come give their lives to Jesus. And I remember at that time just thinking, this is absolutely insane. Oh, ye of little faith, you guys live in a community where statistically 
there's five attempted suicides a week. You live in a community that is overrun by drugs and alcohol. We live in a community, marriages are on the rocks. Kids, fifth through ninth grade, our mayor told us, fifth through ninth grade kids are the worst case scenario in our city right now because they're fatherless. You live in the dark place. And you are the light by the grace of God that he's called to shine upon the region that we live in. To draw people to himself and he doesn't care how you feel about it. Whether or not you're nervous, whether or not you think you can't speak or you're not qualified to speak, he wants you to just say something. Let the light shine. Jesus ends with this in this section. From that time, Jesus began to preach saying, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. I'm going to ask the worship team to come back up. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Anybody heard that before? A few weeks ago, what did John the Baptist come onto the scene saying? Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. Now Jesus, this is, as far as what Matthew records, it's the first red letters that Jesus spoke to other people. He had spoke to John the Baptist, that Matthew records. He had spoke um, to Satan, as Matthew records. And now Jesus speaks to others, and he says, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And it says that he came preaching to them. And, and, and I, I just want to remind us this morning that when it says preach, the word preach isn't what we think of it. It's not some dude on a stage that's dressed classy, saying everything that people want them to hear. That's the preacher with bling on his fingers and, you know, massive chains around his. Like, the, Jesus was not coming onto the thing as some blingy preacher. He wasn't a preacher from a stage. Jesus was preaching. He was proclaiming or heralding this message. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He preached this to them. The first part, repent. It's to change your way of life as a result of a complete change of thought and attitude with regards to sin and righteousness. I'll come back to that one in a second. The second part is repent. Why? Because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And, and I want to briefly just share like what a kingdom is. In biblical times, they would have understood this kingdom vocabulary as Jesus comes saying this. For you and I, we don't really understand the kingdom verbiage. But they understood it that a kingdom was a king, led by a king, like it had a ruler who establishes rules and systems over a region. He has reign over a region. And this was the king's kingdom king's dominion and we don't quite get this today in america but like the closest thing we have to it is maybe by looking at the office of president who's like in oversight over a particular region but for a jew to hear repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand you have to understand what they'd be thinking like it meant that there was a new reign it meant that there was a new ruler. It, it actually meant that somebody else was in charge. There was a different power. And this was the one they were, that they were waiting for. This was the Messiah. This is 
the savior that they were waiting for. And this king sits as king on his throne over the universe, and, and he has his kingly rule, his kingdom, and his reign. He governs over all things. And the basic meaning of the word kingdom in the Bible is God's kingly rule. It's his reign, it's his action, it's his lordship, it's his sovereign governance over something. And so it's God's kingly rule over the hearts of men and women. And so the fascinating part about God's kingdom was that it wasn't a geographical location. So he wasn't saying that repent for this new geographical location is at hand and you must live within it. But he is saying repent because there is a new king and there is a new kingdom at hand, but this kingdom is actually made up of hearts and lives of people. And this kingdom does have a new ruler and this ruler functions a little bit different than the rest of them. This ruler is King Jesus. And when you read further, as we get into the book of Matthew, we're going to see how God's kingdom just flips all the other kingdoms upside down, right? It's totally different. Like in God's rule, you lead by serving. In God's rule, you find life when you die to yourself. In God's rule, you love those that hate you the most. In God's rule, you become rich by giving away. It just doesn't make sense. The kingdom that Jesus was establishing. And Jesus' message was that there is a new king. There's a new kingdom at hand. He's not ruling over a region on the earth. He's ruling over hearts. And my question today is super simple for you. Does he have control over your heart? Or do you live in your own kingdom? Or do you even live in, live in a kingdom like ruled and established and reigned over by an earthly figure? That's not the kingdom that Jesus was calling them to repent and turn from. So understand that as a Jew to hear this, they're literally being asked to repent, to turn away from the kingdoms that they know that are earthly, to turn towards a heavenly kingdom ruled over by Jesus that would grant them forgiveness and salvation, that would rule over, the, the light would come into dark places. This was God's rule. And Jesus came to shine God's light in all of our lives. Have you this morning allowed God's light to shine upon you, to draw you near to him? Have you accepted Jesus as your Lord and Savior? And if you have, then your responsibility is the same as mine. And that's that we are responsible to shine Jesus' light. Jesus told us to let his light shine through us to the people around us. And if you are a follower of Jesus, he has a very specific plan for your life and it's not for you to make six figures and be successful. It's for you to allow your light to shine in the dark places that he's placed you. If you're not a believer this morning, you have a choice to make right now. Jesus came to shine the light of God's truth, to draw you to himself. But he's not going to force himself upon you. That's not the way his kingdom works. He's not forcing you into it. He's inviting you into it. And he gives you this choice this morning to accept him or to reject him. And the choice is yours. And my only question is, if God loved you so much, 
that he would send his son Jesus to die for you so that you could be forgiven, why would you want to reject him? If you guys would stand with me, we're going to sing a worship song. And um, while we sing this song, I'm literally going to invite those of you that need prayer down to the front, and I'm going to have a handful of us up here to pray for you. Those of you that just want to stay and sing, sing, like praise the Lord. There are those of you in this room who are living conflicted lives right now. You're actually torn between two kingdoms. And the light is shining and you're drawn to one, but you're afraid to leave the other. And I challenge you, I encourage you this morning to forsake all that you thought you needed or you want in order to come to the Lord that knows exactly what you need. And there's gonna be a handful of us down here this morning love the opportunity to pray with you. As soon as we get done singing, Angela will come in here and dismiss you, but I just want to invite you this morning to come forward. If you're a believer and you're wrestling and you need somebody to contend with you by the Spirit and pray, we want to do that. If you do not know Jesus and this morning you're feeling the tug on your heart to come to know him, come forward and come grab on it. We want to pray with you. We would love, we would feel as though it was an honor and a privilege to lead you to Jesus, our Savior. Amen? Let's sing.